The word of God from 1 Samuel. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hand and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow not come into my house? <clears throat> David departed from there and escaped to the cave of to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became the commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please uh, remain standing as we... Pray together. Good morning, Lord. Thank you for your grace being the lifter of our head. Thank you for your word read over us. Lord, some of us here are so excited to hear from you and our hearts are soft. And so we just pray that you'd Meet us through your word. Some of us aren't even sure why we're here or what we even believe. I pray that your spirit would be with them. Some of us are just sad about the world and its brokenness and violence. And like, what are we even doing, Lord? And it's sad. And so we just pray for those who grieve. I think of so many, of course, in Memphis. It's even more than that, Lord. So give us refuge, give us respite as we hear from you. Encourage our hearts. Change your world, transform your world, and may that transformation project begin today as we study your word. And we ask that you'd be with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, My name's Ronnie. I'm the senior pastor here at Denver Prez. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I know there are a few here today, so we're so glad that you have found us. Um, We are getting closer to the end of our study on 1 Samuel. We're not quite done, but we're definitely on the back nine. And if you'll remember that 1 Samuel is not so much about Samuel, but it's about the rise and ascent of King David. Uh, The title to our sermon series has been Looking for a King. And the idea is that by reading and studying this biography of King David, how he becomes the king, we're, by doing that, we're actually looking way past King David. 
See, through the ascent of David, we are seeing what David is pointing to, a greater David, a king who could be everything that David could not be. And so far, what we have seen are really the positive feats of David, right? We've seen David represent his people as their champion. We have seen David and Jonathan's friendship, one that um, is enchanting, one that we long for, for ourselves. But today, we are going to see a real deficit in David's character. And guess what? we are still going to learn about Jesus through it. Because all of scriptures, every word in the scriptures are pointing us to Jesus. And it's really important that you learn to read your Bible that way. And so let me, let me set the stage a little bit with an illustration. It'll help us understand today's passage. So one thing about me, uh, some of you know this, I'm really interested in World War I and World War II. So I'm not like a history buff or anything, but those two wars particularly have really captured my imagination and I think uh, and read a lot about them. Uh, one movie, I've seen a lot of movies on these two worlds. One movie that's really, I found particularly good was uh, called 1917. I'm sure a few of you guys have seen this. 1917 follows two British soldiers who have one job and it is to get a message to a field marshal to call off an offensive that they're about to embark upon. Because if that offensive goes through, if it were to happen, it would result in a devastating loss of life. And so they're, they're trying to get this message to this field marshal. Now, here's the thing that makes the movie so special. This movie is filmed as if it were one long, continuous shot. Like, literally, the camera never cuts away to a different scene. The camera never cuts away to a different time. It's one long shot that follows the life of these two soldiers for, like, two hours of their life. And, and by using this really interesting cinematic technique, it ratchets up the action and the anxiety. And the audience begins to feel just the inexhaustible sequence, sequences of danger and these two soldiers unlikely escape. That's what we're starting to get with David. After David's escaped last week by the help of Jonathan, we begin essentially six chapters of inexhaustible sequences of danger. But this is not a movie. This is David's life. And here's the thing. Sometimes David responds to this danger with faith and virtue. And other times, David responds poorly. He responds terribly to the fear and trouble that he's enduring. But as you read all of these scary sequences, as a skilled reader, you're supposed to see a story behind the story a reality behind the details. And here's the reality. God is there in between the lines. It is God guiding David. That is who God is. That is who God is for David. And that is who God is with us. 
in between the lines, providentially guiding us. And as we look at this peculiar story, we're going to evaluate the details, but what we're doing is we're looking for God in between the lines. And so we're going to study this passage in two ways. First, we're going to see how God is guiding David even in his worst moments. And then second, we're going to see how God is guiding David even when he's on the wrong path. So let's begin our first point with how God is guiding even in David's worst moments. Um, Mark Twain, uh, I haven't really read Mark Twain well since high school, but if if you remember him, he has like a ton of like proverbial wisdom. One of his lines has always stuck with me. Mark Twain is credited by saying this. He says, if you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. If you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. And what that means is if you tell a lie, you have to remember like what you said and who you told it to. And because like lies begin to create this false web of reality that it's up to you to maintain. You have to keep it all up. And it takes like so much effort to be a liar. And so uh, in many ways, lying is its own punishment. It's exhausting to be a liar because it introduces anxiety and energy that frankly, we, none of us have, right? Well, that bit of wisdom kept like running through my mind as I studied this passage. So if you'll notice in our text, uh, we started in chapter uh, 21, verse one, and then we jumped to verse 10, um, we didn't read it, you know, it's a very long passage. I'm trying to make it a little bit shorter for you, but let me summarize those 10 verses for you. So the story, the context picks up with Jonathan uh, returning to the royal court, and now David is on the run. He is a fugitive. David is an enemy of the state. The official position from King Saul is kill on sight. All right, that's That's the context. And David has nothing except the clothes on his back. So he has gone from being a war hero to a fugitive. And his life is hard. And so we learn in verse 1 that David evades and he goes to Nob. Now Nob is a sanctuary city. It's a priestly city where it's kind of a headquarters of sorts for uh, the Levites. So, you know, the uh, the, the tribe of Levi does not have their own land, and so they have these refuge cities. So that's what Nob is. And so there he is, and he meets the priest Ahimelech. And Ahimelech is understandably, understandably nervous. He asks there, verse 1, why are you alone, and why is no one with you? These are good questions. Why is someone who is a part of the royal court alone? without soldiers watching his back, without an entourage. See, Ahimelech is no dummy. Now, these questions are barely hanging in the air, and without a second thought, rolling right off of his tongue, David responds with a lie. David says, well, Saul put me on a secret mission, and it's so top secret, no one knows about it. And I sent my entourage, uh, you know, to a different location. And, oh, by the way, do you have some bread around here that I could eat? (laughs) 
Now, we don't know why the priest bought this story or if he just preferred not to ask more questions or if he was just afraid, but um, the priest made an exception. He says, you know, I don't have common bread, but um, I do have bread of the presence. Now, um, this bread, bread of the presence, is not available for like a hot Chiba Hut sandwich. All right. This is holy bread. It is part of their ritual practice. But Ahimelech would make an exception if David could vouch for his guys, guys who don't exist, that they are ritually clean. This means that they, his fake entourage, are abstaining uh, with relationships with women, with their wives. And that this, David doubles down with another story. More details. You know, like the guy who comes up to you in a gas station with a very long story with way too many details about why he needs exactly $7 from you. And, and you know, like the story and too many details like proves that he's a liar. You know, you know that guy? That's David in this moment. He does that and David gets his $7. <laughs> he gets what he came for. Food bread. And we learn later that Saul finds out that Himelech helped David, the liar. And Himelech is killed for it. Himelech meaningfully helps a liar and pays for it with his life. And strangely, we see an echo here already of Christ and what Christ will accomplish for even David. And what I mean is Christ preserves the, the life of liars and swindlers at the cost of his own life. The innocent serves and he dies and the guilty one takes and lives. And in the story of David, this is the first morally suspect thing that is recorded um, of what he does, but it won't be his last. The ease by which he looks at this holy man in the face, the, the way he looks this priest in the eyes and just lies. Like David is so comfortable with deceit. It just rolls right off of his tongue. And what's interesting to me is just like how matter of fact the text is about the weak moral life of Israel's greatest king. Like, you know, scripture never tells us anything about David's life. It just tells us his life. David lies and he gets his daily bread anyway. And there's more. So remember, like David has nothing. So he says to the priest, he continues this conversation. He says, by the way, by chance, do you have any weapons? <laughs> and Ahimelech says, well, you know, I do have that big old fancy and famous Excalibur sword that belonged to the most famous Philistine warrior who, oh, by the way, you cut off his head, David. It's Goliath's famous sword. David's like, sweet, that'll do. I'll take it. And the text tells us that he takes the bread, he takes the sword, and he leaves the sanctuary city knob, and he heads to Gath. Gath. You might not remember, 
but let me remind you what Gath is, what city this is. David has just made a morally suspect decision, and now he is making a morally dumb decision. Gath is the hometown of Goliath. Gath is a Philistine stronghold, and he just wants to roll into town with homie's sword on his back. The most famous sword, whose, uh, uh, their most famous warrior whose head he, he cut off. Now, we don't know why he elected to go to Gath. Maybe he thought he could make an alliance. Maybe he thought he could sell some military secrets. Maybe he thought he could get a side hustle as a mercenary. He's pretty good at fighting. Maybe he thought he could just stay anonymous. But as one commentator put it, if your best plan is to go to your worst enemy, then things are bad for you. Up must have felt like down for David. Now, I just want to pause for just a second here. Sometimes when people uh, speak about the Bible, they'll say, you know, in the Old Testament, we have like a God of law. And then in the New Testament, you have a God of grace. Have you ever heard people try to categorize the Bible like that? That is false. That is false. God is always a God of grace. David is at an all-time low. He is making morally suspect and morally dumb decisions, but he gets his daily bread. Do you see why I keep repeating that we're seeing God here in between the lines? God is guiding even in our worst moments. There are few clearer pictures of grace. Favor that David did not earn or did not deserve, but he gets his daily bread anyway. Church, we believe in the most thorough and exhaustive vision of grace. I mean, it is incomparable in anything, in any system of thought on this planet. We teach that we receive good from God, not because we are good, not because we have earned it, not because we deserve it, but just because that is who God is, because he loves us. He loves us and he provides us daily bread while we're lying about our need for daily bread. Grace, it is central to who God is. Now, of course, the love of God, it works on us. It, it changes us. And if, if, if we begin to lean into it, of course, it helps us to make morally upright decisions, but it don't miss the point. God's love is always first. And it is never earned. God loves liars and fakes. And he loves us first. You know, when Jesus taught us to pray, he says, give us this day our daily bread. And he knew, he knew that he was teaching to pray, teaching that prayer to people who are fakes. Like he knew that liars and fakes 
must regularly go to our heavenly father seeking daily bread. He knew who he was teaching that prayer to. You know, my experience is is that a lot of people struggle to pray because they just feel disqualified by their lack of faith or their, the lack of virtue in their lives. If that is you, don't you dare lose sight of the God in between the lights. God knows who you are your deficits, and he commands you to pray for daily bread. And he will give it to you, not because you're good enough, but because he loves you, because he is a God of grace. It is central to who he is. So God is guiding, God is providing in our worst moments, perhaps especially in our worst moments, But there's more. And this is our second point. God is guiding even when we're on the wrong path. Even when we're on the wrong path. Do you um, you guys know how like music can kind of transport you to a time and place? You can just hear a song, a note, and you're you're at this place. Um, When I was in sixth grade, I had my first love, Lisa Langham. Lisa, if you're somehow listening to this on a podcast, you made it. You're an illustration in my sermon. Congrats. So it was the summer of sixth grade. It was the summer of puppy love. And on the radio was the hit song by Richard Marks, Right Here Waiting for You. Some of you know that song. I must have listened to that song 50 times a day all summer. So that summer, Lisa, I miss you. Lisa's family, uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, She moved, Lisa moved to a different state, and that song became the anthem of my heart. That song and my heartbreak were fused together. Fast forward to the, the next three summers. Every time I would hear that song, it was like PTS. Right? Just by hearing that initial like synthesizer, you know what I'm talking about how the song starts, I would become a bit despondent, right? Because music can transport you, right? Can I suggest to you that's what we see in our text? So David gets to Gath, and the servants of Achish, the, the king of Gath, they say to David, they say, is that that guy David, the one with the sword on his back? Isn't this the guy who, like, the top 100 Billboard hit song was written about, right? And then then they sing that song again, right? And it keeps, like, showing up in our text. Have you noticed? Like, every time. Saul struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. I mean, it must have had a really catchy tune because it keeps getting recorded in our text. But, man, when when that tune, when those notes hit the ears of David, man, it hits different. PTS. Verse 12 says, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. In other words, David is shook. So what does he do? He starts 
acting insane as one would naturally do in these kinds of situations. <laughs> he starts like wailing, marking up the door, starts spitting, like spittles like coming down his beard, right? Literally says that in verse 13. Like that's David's plan. Like to act like a madman. Like, hey, David, what's your plan? He's like, I got this. That's his plan, to act like a madman. This is as absurd of a plan as going to Gath in the first place. David is on the wrong path, you see. And astonishingly, the plan works. David is on the wrong path, and God is working it out. Akish is like, guys, you know, I have enough crazy people in my life. He probably has teenagers, right? Just kidding. Love y'all. And so he was like, you know, I don't need another crazy guy. And Akish, the king of Gath, lets David go. And for the second time in David's life on the run, he's given deliverance in spite of himself. And that is actually how David himself comes to understand this event. Later, David would write a psalm about this precise moment. And if you don't know, it's Psalm 34. Take time this afternoon to read Psalm 34. He's, it is, the context is this moment. And I want to read just a few verses from Psalm 34. In verse 6, David writes, This poor man cried. He's talking about them himself. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David knew that he was on the wrong path and that it wasn't his own cunning that saved him. The Lord heard him and saved him. And God took David from the wrong path and gave him refuge. He doesn't celebrate his own prowess or believe that his own strategic actions saved him. It was God. God was his refuge. This is grace for David. And this is grace for us. We are seeing God in between the lines for David but that's how he operates, and that's how he operates for us. And when we look around at our suspect and absurd choices, the ones that we make when we're under pressure, when we fear what we've gotten ourselves into, or the trouble we didn't even ask for, we remember that even there, God is there. God is a refuge for people who make bad choices. <laughs> like, do you understand what I'm saying? He's not a refuge for people who make good and wise choices, but he is a refuge for those who are on the wrong path. There is no quid pro quo relationship with our God. He is gracious. We are needy and unwise, and he gives us refuge from our wrong path. And it's important like, to take time to look back on your lives and to take inventory and to remember that what I am saying to you is true. Like write a psalm about it. 
Retell your story. Recognizing this, saying that it is true, giving witness to this, living this reality and truth has an effect and it creates a humble beauty in our lives when we do it. When we remember this truth, we become less and less likely to rely on ourselves when we are in trouble and more likely to rely on the God who raises the dead, who undoes dead things and makes them alive. Do you hear what I'm saying? In those tough moments, you will pin your hopes on God who raises the dead. Like when you're, when you're under pressure, when you are afraid, when you're stuck, when you are on the wrong path, your eye will begin to see a real refuge in Christ. David found refuge right under the nose of Achish. And he made no sterling choices to speak of. God's hand was guiding even while, especially while, David was on the wrong path. God's hand was upon you. You hear me? When you were on the wrong path. Is that the story you tell? Is that the story you tell? Is that the psalm you write? It must be, church. If you don't, you will pin your hopes on your own clever and on your own wit. But you must place all of your hopes on the God who raises the dead. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what Christians do. And so I, I want to encourage you, to, like, Go through this, do this, take time this week, make an inventory of your story. Tell your story according to God's refuge. For you who fear what you've gotten yourselves into or the trouble that you didn't ask for, hear this, God is a refuge for those who make bad choices. He's always there, especially there especially there on the wrong path. Let me quickly, just quickly conclude. In some ways, uh, this sermon is my attempt to help us to read the Bible according to the author's intent. You have to read it seeing God there. Did you know that the whole book of Esther in the Old Testament, the whole book does not even have the word God in it. <laughs> the word God doesn't even appear in the entire book of Esther. And yet, to read it properly, you need to see God in between the lines. That's what we're doing with our passage today. On its face, we see David making a series of poor decisions. And yet, inexplicably, David, though undeserving, gets refuge in God. And so God is the hero of this story. He is guiding David even in his worst moments. He is guiding him even when David is on the wrong path. The God of David is the God of the unworthy. And he is our God. Our refuge. Now if you follow this story to the very end, 
though God is in between the lines, he really starts to emerge with this uncanny Christ-centered focus. And so let me finish the sermon explaining. So in chapter 22, verse 1, we learn that David flees again. First he was in Nob, then in Gath. He flees Gath and he goes to the cave of Adullam. Now, Adullam is a series of natural rock fortresses. It's about like 18 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It's really just a bunch of caves. Somehow the word gets out, and as it does, the author tells us that his brothers, David's brothers and all of his father's house, went to him, but not them only. Verse 2, And everyone who was in distress... And everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. David gathers a band of misfits, marginalized, outsiders, like literally a parade of hurt, broken, and angry people. What kind of detail is this that's just interjected in our text? What kind of detail is this? In this way, David is pointing way past himself to a greater David who will come one day. He's pointing to the one who, although is not morally suspect, he will attract a whole following of morally suspect people, of tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and deniers and liars and fakes. And that one, Christ Jesus, will offer refuge to them. And we are numbered among them. Not because we've earned it or reasoned our way to it or because we make sterling choices. He offers us refuge because he loves us. Because that's just who he is. And blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Amen. Amen.